You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Welcome back to another episode of Oil & Gas This Week. You're listening to episode 131. What is up, Mark? What is up? Uh, we're all busy. Things are going good. And you know what, Jake? We have some peers in, in our podcast world. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing. Yep. So a big shout out to Ryan Ray and David Blackman at globalenergymedia.com. They have a podcast that has about six episodes, so it's new called Energy Week. It's a weekly topical news show focused on energy. So big shout out to those two guys. They're doing something similar to what we're doing, and we, you know, we wish them all the best. So audience, we'll put a link in the show notes. You can go check out their show. Uh, if you like their show, uh, subscribe to it and give them a review. The more stuff like this we see, the more our oil and gas new media family grows. So really big shout out to both those guys. Welcome aboard, and we wish you very, very much success. And we've got some reviews. So like we said, if you guys leave us reviews, we're going to give you a shout out on the air. Of course, reviews help everybody, help us get more exposure for the show. We've got one. It says, great podcast. It's from, uh, I'm going to say maybe Elsie, son four from Norway. She writes as a newcomer to the oil and gas industry. This podcast is fantastic. It gives a good overview and provides the listener with the relevant and interesting news concerning the oil and gas market. What I like most is that the podcast combines both technological, political, and economical aspects of the industry and how it affects the world. Big thanks to Mark and Jake for the podcast. P.S. Jake, could you speak a little louder? <laughs> if I'm listening to this while I'm traveling and in some episodes, I struggle to hear you even at max volume. So Yes, I am not the loudest person. I don't have this booming voice like Mark, but we're working on that. Yeah, we've got that fixed. We have our professional audio editing team now equalizing all that audio. So from now in the future, it should be much better. And like Jake said, if you want to support the show, the easiest thing you can do to support the show is give us a review in iTunes, just like Else did. Uh, let's jump into the news stories, Jake. All right. First up, OPEC agrees to a nine-month extension, the oil production deal. So talks ended in Vienna uh, this past Thursday with an agreement to extend the production cut deal through the end of 2018. Would you like me to comment on that? Yeah, we can go to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the interesting thing is this is keeping prices up where they need to be, you know, uh, 50 to $60 a barrel. I think we're just a bit above 50 today. The thing that's interesting about this is how much Russia's playing a role in this, which is, as I said earlier, it's not the best thing for U.S. We'd rather have Russia in the U.S., on the same side instead of Russian OPEC. But the other thing, Jake, that you don't hear anybody talking to is what's going to happen when this agreement ends? Are they just going to keep using this you know, forever to keep the, the prices up? Are they going to taper it off? It, we're entering into a new world and the old world of scarcity where there wasn't enough hydrocarbons is gone. And there's hydrocarbons everywhere. And companies and countries are going to have to get used to working in a low price environment. The other thing that's really interesting this from a from a political point of view is OPEC is now rapidly trying to diversify their revenue stream and get away from just being an oil exporter, which it really is their sole source of revenue. So we'll keep an eye on this. You know, it's a good thing for for the for the world, for the producers especially, is there is we're keeping, you know, the barrel of the cross of barrel crude up in that fifty to sixty dollar price range. Uh, we're gonna talk about this some more when Modal Point releases its predictions of twenty eighteen, which was supposed to be November, and I do realize the day is December, so it's coming soon. So what do you think would happen you know, if the, say this nine months extensions over, I mean, do you, what, what do you think would happen? So I think what's going to happen is it's, it's financially beneficial to both OPEC and to Russia to work together to keep these prices where they are, right? That 50 to $60 barrel range. 
The problem with that, though, is as you make that oil profitable, it, it encourages the U.S. producers to go punch holes in the ground and to produce more oil. Because at $56 a barrel, the frack fields can make good money. And now that we can export oil, this is one of the things a lot of people understand. When the, the oversupply first happened, we couldn't export our own oil. We couldn't put it on the market. So we didn't compete globally. Now we can. And, and yes, there's some differences. The oils that we produce is different than what the oil that OPEC produces. But this is going to spur more development here in the U.S. And, and quite frankly, in other parts of the world where they're, they're doing unconventionals or where they're, where they're shell. So when you do that, then you have more production, which means you can flood the market. And at some point, and I think we're already past this, but at some point, even OPEC and Russia working together cannot prevent another oversupply. And so at some point, even these, this type of agreement is not going to be able to control the global price of oil. And, and I, I know people lost jobs. I know companies went out of business. I know this last three years, two and a half years of low crude price environments hurt a lot of people. But the truth is the market needs to adjust this. And this is not the market adjustment. This is two major oil exporters working together, which by the way, Jake, you know, something like that would be illegal in the U.S.? Really? Yeah. So imagine if Chevron and Exxon decided to work together to fix prices. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So this is, you know, one of the difference between the way we do business and quite frankly, in Europe as well, we, we can't, we, you know, we literally, it's illegal for us to do that stuff here. So you got two different methods of doing business that are, 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 it looks like they're heading toward a battle. Is it the free market headed by us and Europe or is it the state controlled oil production uh, headed by OPEC and Russia? So we'll see what happens. Yeah, it's interesting. Up next, on the heels of the latest missile launch from North Korea, the U.S. is asking China to cut off oil supply to North Korea. And so the U.S. has been insisting for months that more radical measures be taken against uh, the North Korean regime, but Beijing has been very reluctant to step up the pressure on North Korea. Yeah, this this is a mess. You and I have talked about this before. You know, this was what the third intercontinental uh, missile test that Korea launched. Yeah, I think so. And, and, and trust me, people, they probably only have four. And, and this is the third one. It's, <laughs> they just don't have the resources to build them like the rest Rocket of the world man. does. Yeah. But the truth is, this could put a payload in the U.S., in the continental U.S. And that's something that as a country, we won't stand for. I mean, that's what started the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, we, we were ready to pull the nuclear trigger on that one and, and the Soviet Union back down. It's the same thing with this one. We cannot have an, a country that's aggressive toward the U.S. that has nuclear capacity, have the ability to put a payload in the continental U.S. So, you know, Kim Jong over there is playing with fire. And of all administrations, Jake, for him to be messing with, <laughs> this is probably one of the worst ones uh, for, for him and his country. So hopefully, you know what's kind of cool about this? is we're still going down a diplomatic path. So we're trying to get China to uh, cut off oil supply to North Korea, which would basically cut their energy source to almost zero because they produce no energy of their own. They have to import it all. Um, it also is going to re- further restrict their ability to, to do trade in the global market. I mean, literally, if you don't have fuel for your ships and there's already an embargo in place, I mean, you're just, I mean, we're going to choke them to death. So hopefully China jumps in here. China lately has started to help uh, as far as sanctions and helping to to help you know kind of push back on this North Korean regime, which is good. China realizes that that you know if there's any type of military action between the U.S. and North Korea, it's not good for China. And so we'll see where this thing goes. We'll stay on top of this. But I mean, this is this is just crazy from from North Korea's point of view. Yeah, from what I'm hearing, I think they're they're just kind of weary of a, a refugee crisis. If there's an open military conflict, you know, where everybody's just going to rush into China, you know, a country that's already. I think the most populated in the world, right? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. 
and they're not set up to take refugees. It's they don't have the infrastructure like we have, right? They don't yeah. have roads and hospitals and and auditoriums that convert to refugees. They just don't have it. So there's no place to put the the, the people that would happen there. And it would also it would also overwhelm South Korea, uh, which is our ally. So it just and it would ruin the economy in Asia Pacific. It just it just would be a mess. So let's hope yeah. it doesn't go there. And and you know I keep saying this guy's nuts. He may be smart as a fox. He may be pushing this to force the U.S. to the negotiation table to make some concessions they normally wouldn't make. If that's his approach, I don't think it's going to work. So, but like I said, let's keep an eye on this and see where it goes. Did you see the uh, the video of the North Korean deflector? No, it was released in the last week or so. Yeah, so this guy jumps in. Oh, a, in a Jeep. I did see that. I did see that, and they yeah. sh- they shoot at him right, and they chase yeah. him down. Yeah. They shot across the DMZ, which is a, a major, major violation. Uh, but they hit him like five times. But apparently, he's in in stable condition now. And and the uh, South Korean guards, like you know, low crawled over to him and drug him off, and you know, took him to the hospital and everything. So it's crazy. They yeah, the videos all over the internet. Yeah, if we get a chance to put a link in the show. So basically, the North Korean soldier defected, knowing that he probably was going to die. It is that bad over there where they're willing to risk their lives at just a small chance escaping into democracy, in this case, South Vietnam, South Korea. And yeah, the South Korean soldiers, I did see that, were very brave, right? This isn't one of their own. And they crawled under heavy fire, and they grabbed this guy, and they pulled him back across the line. So um, yeah, hats off those soldiers for doing that, because you know it wasn't one of their own, but they did it anyway. They did the right thing. Yeah. Cool. Up next, Inbridge is looking to sell $10 billion in assets as it refocuses its business. So Inbridge, of course, is focus, uh, is based out of Calgary, but they have a huge Houston presence here. They're planning to refocus their business on pipelines and storage and will divest billions of dollars in assets. Yeah. And what they're getting rid of is, is a lot of the unregulated stuff, pipelines for, for gas and then the onshore renewables business. Enbridge realizes that after merging with Spectre Energy this year, they need to focus on their core competencies. Unfortunately, their renewables is not their core competencies, and and the unregulated gas isn't either. So this is just a, a, a company lining things up to make sure they can concentrate on their core competencies, raise a little capital, and get a much better return on that capital than where it was sitting now. So they just, just dump some assets. And then, quite frankly, the companies that pick up those assets, it'll be inside their core competencies, so they'll benefit from it as well. So this is this is good. It's expected. You know, you see this quite often as companies grow, they get large, they try different things, and when they figure out it doesn't work, they need to get rid of it. Because especially public companies, you know, what the shareholders think is almost as important as anything else. And if the shareholders think that you're too diversified, that you're not concentrating your core business, then your shareholder values tanks, or not tanks, but takes a drop. So this is Enbridge yeah. doing the right thing to its shareholders. Cool. Up next, one of the top executives here in Houston, uh, the Houston-based energy investment Bank Tudor Pickering and Holtco says that she thinks that there could be a real improvement in energy industry gender diversification within the next five years. So as it currently sits, women make up 25% of the global workforce in the energy industry, according to 2017 data from the World Economic Forum. I know we've talked about this in the past, and I know it's a lot better than it used to be, too. Well, it also depends on where you're talking about. If you're talking about Nigeria, not so much. If you're talking about the U.S. and Europe, it's actually really cool. You know, one of our sister shows, Oil and Gas Industry Leaders, their sponsor is Bulwark, which is the largest manufacturer of flame-resistant clothing in the world, FRs. And so they've recently won a couple of large contracts here in the U.S. with extremely large petrochemical companies because they have the largest selection of FR clothing for women. And one of the interesting stats that came out of our conversations with them is that both of these large petrochemical plants 
have about 40% of their field staff, not office staff, field staff are female. And the thing about FR clothing is that if it doesn't fit you right, it doesn't protect you. And women's bodies, of course, are shaped differently than men's. So that's an amazing story in itself that close to 40% of their field staff are female. And I just think that's awesome. The other thing that they don't talk about in this article is about 60% of all the new hires in U.S. and Europe in oil and gas are female or women. And if that trend continues, Jake, eventually men will be the minority in the oil and gas industry, which is just for me, almost impossible to to even think of. But I think this is yeah. great, and the fact that that companies are looking at this and trying to make things right is is the way it should go. And I, I think we're over the 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 hump. We're over the the curve, right? We I think the worst as far as uh, gender equality was probably in the seventies. Then ever since then, it's got better and better. You know, one of the things I think is really cool, Jake, when you and I go speak at all these universities, and they're always. The audience is always made up usually of people that have a, a degree that relates to oil and gas. So uh, geosciences, petroleum engineering, mechanical engineering. And if you notice, Jake, at least half of that room of the young people are women. And I just think that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Every every time we've spoke, it's it's definitely at least half women in there. Yeah. And some schools you go to, it's more than half. Yep. We love our women in the industry. So let's uh, keep an eye on this and see how it goes. All right. What's next? Uh, so I don't know if I'm going to butcher the name. Is, is it Shaniri? Shaniri. A Chenier. We okay. need to work There's on you no and your Cajun name pronunciations. Yeah, I am just not. I'm just not good at producing, <laughs> pronouncing anything from from Louisiana. Uh, so Chenier Energy is taking another step forward in its efforts to establish an ongoing liquefied natural gas supply deal with China. And so uh, there's a quote from, I guess, one of the executives there saying, we view our ability to actually deliver physical LNG today as a competitive advantage. So we're happy to help out different counterparties that we want to establish a long-term relationship with. It was all part of our marketing strategy to get ourselves embedded into different Asian markets. Yeah. And if you've listened to me for any length of time on the show, I've talked about ethylene crackers, petrochemicals, LNG. And one of the things is the companies that get to the market first here in the U.S. are going to win. Because what they're going to do is they're sign long-term lucrative contracts with their buyers. And for things like LNG, Asia Pacific is one of the big buyers. So, of course, China. And so here's a perfect example. Chenier Energy uh, signing a contract with China gives them long-term forecastable revenue, which then allows them to borrow money to continue to grow their LNG uh, footprint to able to produce more LNG, their competitors at a lower cost, which then will allow them to sign more contracts and so on and so on. And this is a, I believe it just a, a, a MOU, a memorandum of understanding. So basically saying, we agree that we're going to sell, you're going to buy this at this price. It's not actual a contract, but um, in today's world, you know, companies honor these uh, the MOUs all the time. So here's a, a, you know, great example of a U.S. company signing some long-term contracts in Asia Pacific for LNG. And LNG is the fuel of the future. And yes, I know the price is tanked right now and it's not much money in it, but I'm telling you it's coming and it won't be that much longer. Do you think this has any implications for the U.S.? Oh, hell yeah. So LNG or gas is the fuel of the future for the world, period. Exxon saw this. Shell saw this. They've turned themselves into gas companies. And so we're going to have the ability to produce more LNG at a lower cost and transport at a lower cost than anybody in the world because we have the raw feedstock, the second cheapest raw feedstock, but we have the cheapest transportation cost because we have deep water ports on every coast. So as long as our politicians don't get involved in this and mess something up, we will be the world leader in LNG exportation. And, and that's just good for the U.S. It's good for our tax base. It's good for our uh, uh, companies that hire people in the U.S. It's good for the, the world as a whole because as you switch from say coal to uh, gas for electrical generation, you automatically drop air emissions. So just this is a good thing all the way around. Yeah. And up next, 
Uh, Tellurian makes a $15 billion deal for engineering and construction of flagship LNG project. So Tellurian has awarded Bechtel Oil and Gas Chemicals a collection of four engineering procurement and construction agreements for its flagship liquefied natural gas terminal near Lake Charles, uh, Louisiana. So it's a $15.24 billion facility. It's looking like it's going to be completed in 2025. Uh, they're going to do it in phases and, and bring certain parts of it online. Yeah. So once again, we're talking about LNG again. You know, it's interesting. They don't talk about this, but Bechtel, which is an EPC, Engineering Procurement uh, Construction Company, in the U.S., I mean, not in the U.S., globally, Jake, they have 30% of all the LNG work. So all the LNG plants all over the world, Bechtel has 30% of them. This is, th- this is almost a backstory about how good Bechtel's doing. <laughs> But anyway, so you know, this is just another story about LNG, how Tellurian sees the future profitability. Same stuff we were just talking about in the previous article. And they're, you know, it's a Houston-based company, and, and they're building a terminal near Lake Charles. Why? Because there's a deep water port there. And actually, there's another backstory here, too. It would be better if they built this near the Port of Houston. But the Port of Houston is so busy that the cost of being able to buy land there to build this is prohibitive. So because of that, companies are going to Louisiana, places like Lake Charles, where the port is not as good, but the land's so much cheaper. So if Lake Charles, the city of Lake Charles and the state of Louisiana actually play this thing right and go and build another deep water port and expand the deep water port capacities in Lake Charles, then they can start competing with Houston for this type of business. It's already starting to happen. But anyway, once again, prosperity for the world, jobs for people in Louisiana, jobs for people here in Houston. Uh, lowering air emissions, you know, this allows the U.S. to export energy all over the world, clean, abundant, reliable energy. So this is just good stuff. And look, they got the capacity to produce almost 28 million tons of year per LNG. That's that's crazy. That's 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 a huge, and that's just one LNG facility. This is also going to make it the the lowest cost LNG facility in the world for now. Yeah, until <laughs> <laughs> the next one comes along. All right, up next. Petrochemical investments will continue to drive forward, according to the Phillips 66 president. And they're saying that we believed then, we believe now that shale gas is going to continue. This is really just the first wave of what we'll see. And I think there's an additional investments you're seeing in the industry that will continue to drive this forward. Yeah. And like I said, if you've listened to us any length of time, I've been talking about this for years. Ethylene crackers, petrochemicals, you know, cheap, abundant supply of natural gas, which if you're a new listener to the show, look around you. Everything that's plastic came from natural gas. An ethylene cracker basically converts natural gas to plastic. So your iPhone, your keyboard, the vinyl in your car, the covers to your lights, the pedals on your bicycle, all that came from hydrocarbons, all that came from natural gas. And so the world has a a huge increasing appetite for plastics. And for this was a reason that these ethylene crackers are being stood up. And just like LNG, we've won the race. We have the second cheapest feedstock and the feedstock is natural gas. We have the most efficient ethylene crackers. So our ethylene crackers are more efficient than anybody else in the world. And we have the cheapest transportation costs because we have deep water ports on each coast. Now, what's different about this, Jake, is this means that places where there's a deep water port and natural gas in abundance, you can build an ethylene cracker, which typically you think of Gulf Coast of the US, but they're building them out in Pennsylvania because they have all that natural gas and you got the Atlantic Ocean right there. Yep. So, you know, this is bringing oil and gas jobs to parts of the U.S. that normally wouldn't have oil and gas jobs. And there's a, a bit of a backstory here I'm not going to get into, but I think there's a domino effect that's going on as the biggest constraint for these ethylene crackers is the workforce. In fact, we were talking about the Chenier earlier. They went from, I think, 8 
billion to $11 billion in CapEx to build that, not because there was increase in cost, but there was increase in cost to get the labor they needed. They couldn't hire enough people. And so I think what's going to happen is as you have these labor forces build these ethylene crackers, you then will have a skilled ethylene cracker labor force in that area, which will then lower the cost to build another ethylene cracker. So I think you're going to have geographic parts of the U.S. that are going to have ethylene cracker built after ethylene cracker because the workforce is there and it's trained. And if you think about that, that's long-term job security for those men and women that are building yeah. these ethylene crackers. So like I said, once again, it's all really good, good stuff, you know, and petrochemicals and are, are here to stay and are growing like crazy. You know, we use less crude oil and natural gas in the U S and Europe for fuel every year, but we turn more of it into products and it's just, it's awesome. And last but not least, the vice president of digital innovation at London based BP, everybody knows BP, Uh, is quoted saying, data and analytics that opens up are eventually going to transform the oil patch one way or another. And it's just up to those who work in the sector to prepare for the change. She's also quoted as saying, or I'm not sure if it's a he or she, it's it's an interesting name. Technology is cheaper now than it has ever been. And computers are powerful enough to do more for the oil field. The confluence of inexpensive technology, more powerful computers, and the quantity of data available should make today a fertile time for the expansion of digital technology as long as people embrace it. And that's the biggest challenge. Changing a culture, changing an approach, changing your people, that's really hard. And that's 100% true. But I've I definitely seen over the last three years, there's a, there's a huge, huge shift. And I think a lot of that's attributed to the fact that we just have a, a lot younger workforce coming in that's more willing to embrace newer technologies. Yeah, it's, it's a perfect storm. You know, this long-term hydrocarbon abundant world, the cost of technology has gotten ridiculously cheap. This new young workforce that's coming in, the ability for this industry to adopt things quicker than it has before because there's cultural changes going on, all that comes together. But, you know, they're absolutely right. And this is something that you and I have been talking about forever. <laughs> and, it's, and, and it's spot on. And the thing is, the barrier is the culture of the company. I, I'm seeing this going on right now. You know, I, I look at some of the majors out there and they have a good social media presence. Maybe not great, but good. And then some of them don't. You know, and I look at some of the big independents and some of them have a great presence on social media. Some of them don't exist at all. And the ones that don't get it, that aren't trying right now are going to get left behind. And I don't mean they're necessarily going to go out of business, but their ability to hire people is going to be greatly impacted by their inability to use social media properly. That's just one little piece of technology. So I think yeah. that, that what's going to happen is you could have companies that get it. The cultures could change quicker, which means even more people get it, which is going to speed that that change of culture. And then the companies that don't get it, their culture is not going to change at all. And if they don't change, they're really going to have a hard time attracting and recruiting talent now and in the future. And our industry is built upon technologically educated people. I mean, engineers. And if you can't get enough engineers to run your company, you're in trouble. So, I mean, great article. You know, this is, uh, Jake found this in a Houston business journal, which seems to be his new favorite place to find stuff, but, <laughs> but, but spot on. And it's stuff that you and I, Jake, have been talking about for a very long time. Yep. And that about wraps up the news stories. Yep. We have a winner, don't we, Jake? Yes, we do. Shane Warner from Crescent Point Energy is a facilities engineer. You are this week's winner. Congratulations. If you want to win your own Red Wing bag, uh, just go to the link in the show notes. It's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Uh, no purchase necessary. See official site for rules and details. Hey, you did the legal part really good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Braxton, that. We uh, big shout out to David Studio. Emmons, our new professional audio editing team member. That's the reason that the audio sounds so good. He's doing great work out there. If you have a podcast or if you think about doing a podcast, uh, reach out to him and put OGGN in the beginning of your email and he will give you a discount. 
great work, great guy. You know, thank you so much, Emmett, for doing all this work and making Jake and I sound better, consistently better. And then we're at the weekly rig count. Where are we, Jake? 1,010 rigs. So we're down just a little bit. Yeah, that's to be expected. You know, all those ENP budgets that will launch in January, I suspect that we're going to see the rig counts go up because the price, where the price of crude is. So I'm going to miss my predictions. It's just a little bit too early for my, me to do my predictions for the end of 2018. Let me at least get to January and I'll do those. <laughs> we'll see how wrong I am next year. And then we have our events on deck, uh, Leaders in the Industry Luncheon. That's Wednesday, December 13th at the Petroleum Cub here in Houston. We have a guest speaker, Chris Altheim, he's president of EnergyNet. Go check that out. And then also the API Luncheon, which is Thursday, December 14th. Typically, it's a Tuesday. This time, it's a Thursday. I'll be there. If you go check it out, hit me up on Twitter. I'll let you sit at my table. I'll make introductions for you. We'll put links to both of those in the show notes. If you'd like to learn about these events and more, sign up for my monthly event newsletter. I could charge you for it, but I don't because I like you. We put all the events in together in one newsletter and put it in your inbox once a month. And we also give away stuff that nobody else has, has access to, so free tickets and stuff. Stuff, insider-only events, uh, that sort of stuff. And then if you like the show, you're part of our community. I mean, we're like a family. Jake and I go places and people recognize us like we've known each other for years. If you're part of our community, help us grow your community. Just share the show. It's that simple. Friends, coworkers, you know, employees, do that company all email. Share it and help us grow your community. And then shout out to our 2017 On the Road sponsors, which, by the way, this is getting ready to go away. Uh, Total Land, the world's most advanced field land management system. Check them out if you're in that landman's world. And then Lee Heck Harrison, global experts in talent management. Two great companies. Uh, for 2018, we're actually picking up event sponsors. So this way, your company, let's say your company is a upstream company. Or let's say it's a service company that sells stuff to upstream. Well, we can target just upstream events. So we get you and your message on the podcast in front of just those people instead of everywhere. If you're interested in being one of our event sponsors for 2018, reach out to me or Jake and we'll be happy to share the details. Uh, first Friday Q&A, really simple. Ask a question. We'll give you a big shout out if we use your question on the air. We actually have one uh, that we've already recorded coming out. Go to oilandgasthisweek.com, click on ask a question, put your information in there. And then while you're there, give us your email address. We won't spam you. And when we do something really cool, the first people to find out about it were the people that gave us their email address. The second people that will find out about it are the people that belong to the Oil and Gas Global Network LinkedIn group. So you haven't signed up for the OGG and LinkedIn group, go do that. And is that about it, Jake? Yep, that's it, man. All right, let's get out of here. Remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.